May is here, but I don't think the Swiss weather has caught up with the news yet. I've enjoyed a week of April showers, with more to come. There must be a haiku in there for this month's topic of Kigo, mustn't there? Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the fourth series of the Haiku P podcast. Haiku from the island and with realism. You'll understand what I mean in a little while. Thank you to everyone who sent me emails and messages to celebrate our 100th episode. It was very kind of you. You're such a lovely bunch of poets. Thank you all very much for the motivation you give me to keep the podcast going and the coffees, of course. Today we're going to have the latest of our workshops. This one on Shiki's idea of selective realism. I hope I'm not going to disappoint you by saying I'm going to do it myself, because we've had some fantastic workshops recently, haven't we? By wonderful haiku experts. We're building up quite an educational resource here on the podcast and on YouTube. The video of Randy Brooks will be very useful for you to look at if you're submitting to this month's topic of Kigo. Spread the word and let other haiku poets know about it. I think there are still one or two who haven't heard of us. I know, hard to imagine, isn't it? As well as hearing from me, I have a special treat for you. A bit like eating a jammy donut when the jam has squished all over your fingers, so you have the double pleasure of squashing the last bit of donut in your mouth and then licking up the jam. You know what? It might be time for a cup of tea and a biscuit. So what is the jammy donut today? Well, it's a reading from Kristen Lindquist. Well, more than a reading, actually. We had a chat, which you'll hear, and then she's going to take us for a little walk round an island that's very special to her, and then give us some haiku tips. I hope you enjoyed the journey as much as I did, so do please listen to the end. I think it'll be worth it. Kristen, thanks to you, my bucket list has got even longer. But before we continue, let me just remind you of a few things. The current submission topic is Kigo, so you can write up to 10 haiku with a seasonal reference, anything that takes your fancy, but don't forget your deadline is the 20th of May, midnight Central European time. So you do still have a bit of thinking time available. I'm very happy to say that this month, before she heads off to lead her bird walks, Kristen is joining Jim and Robert and myself as part of the editing team. Let's keep her busy. Thank you for all the great feedback you've been giving to the Spring Journal. There was such a lot of new bits and pieces in it, I was really quite nervous about publishing it. And what would be really amazing is if you could go to Amazon and give us a review. It might even feature on the back cover of the Summer Journal. Now something that comes up every time I publish the journal. Some of you write to me to ask, is your work in it? I always let you know in your acceptance email which podcast and journal your piece of work is going to be in. Please, please make a note of it. If you don't know where your work has been accepted, 
how can you be sure that you're sending journals fresh and original pieces of work? If your work is duplicated in various journals, that might cause a problem for everyone concerned. Now, let's get on with the workshop. The next section of the podcast I'll put up on YouTube so you can read the slides. In my workshop today, I'd like to talk to you about selective realism. It's a technique that was articulated by one of the Japanese masters, Masaoka Shiki, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I've spoken about Shiki before in weeks 21 and 24 of the Haiku P podcast, but I'd like to revisit him today. Many people think that he speaks only to the beginner poet, but if you study him, you'll find that he does have advice for the poet as they advance in their experience of haiku. And that's where I'd like to go today. I'll give you a very brief overview of the man himself, intertwined with a bit of historical context, so you can perhaps understand the environment and influences behind his thoughts. Then I'd like to get into the four principles of shiki and selective realism. Masaoka Shiki, or Shiki as I'm going to continue calling him, was born into a samurai family and a Japanese society which was undergoing immense change. In 1868, just after he was born, Japan was opened up to the Western world. So he was of that generation of Japanese who became exposed to new ideas and philosophies which were prevalent in the West at that time. Perhaps I'm overgeneralizing, but I'll say it anyway. This is the time in Japan when the old ways were becoming redundant and rejected, but as yet there were no new. Nothing set in stone. There was, so to speak, a cultural vacuum. Now Shiki left home around the age of 16 to move to Tokyo to further his education, eventually commencing studies in philosophy. There is speculation that initially he wanted to be active in the formulation of foreign policy in this new Japan, but he realised perhaps not the extent of his illness, but that he was ill and therefore would not be able to follow his desired career. He switched to studying literature and determined instead to have some influence in the formulation of the future of poetry, and in particular tanka and haiku. This still didn't motivate him as a student, he didn't finish his education. I won't hypothesize as to why not, but he threw himself into his self-study of haiku and tanka, and much like Basho, went on a walkabout. At this point, the idea of sachet, the sketch of life, was really percolating through his mind. Shiki was not immune to the conflict between the old and the new societal values in Japan. Despite his desire to be a poet, he also felt the need to be a soldier, a samurai, and go and fight in the First Sino-Japanese War, and yet, because of his illness, he really couldn't. He applied and reapplied for a position as a journalist until eventually he was accepted and sent to China. He found himself in terrible living conditions, which worsened his illness, and as we know, he never did recover. When he came home from the war, 
he threw himself back into Haiku and Tanka, becoming involved with the journal Hototogisu, the Cuckoo. Writing essays on Haiku and Tanka and creating thousands of Haiku, many of them while bedridden with his illness. Now, before we go on, let me read you one of my favorite of his poems, translated by Yuzuru Mayura. Spring day, a long line of footprints on the sandy beach. It's a very simple sketch of life haiku, written without adornment, and yet there are layers to it, aren't there? I think I can detect a sense of yujin as well as sabi. Now, let me tell you about Shiki's four principles or states of haiku development. The first, sachet, or sketch of life, selective realism, imagination, and truthfulness. Almost everybody has heard of sachet or a sketch from life. It's probably one of the first things you come across, well, after you've realized that you don't have to write in the 575 format, that is. Shiki suggested that this was the basic principle of composition in haiku, that beginner poets should accurately observe nature. His criticism of haiku being composed prior to the, his studies was that he felt they were often an intellectual exercise. And I think Randy Brooks put it very well in our podcast last month. These poems were in the poet's head. They had little or no emotive connection to the reader. And he advised his disciples that they should take walks in nature during every season. But you know, even in a small garden, you can find a new subject to write about every day. Shiki also felt that the poet should only use words that are necessary. Good advice. I often find that poetic folks brought up on Western poetry have a tendency towards the adjective, or should I say the overuse of the adjective. Once you start doing that, you start to tell people what it is that you're trying to achieve and what it is that they should be thinking or feeling. When you edit the words down so you really only use the necessary ones, you give your reader the information which they can use to fill the blanks, to feel their own emotional response, to come up with their own story and make the poem their own. There has been criticism that such poems can be bland. Shiki himself said that if a poem is too realistic, it's prone to be commonplace and lacking in surprise. It's a fair point, but surely that's the result of us as poets not creating a work that is exciting or interesting. Perhaps we're inexperienced, perhaps we've not put enough effort into finding the right words, and so our, our poem is very blah. Or maybe as readers, we don't put enough effort into discovering the layers within a poem. However, it is possible to create a poem that works just using sketch from life. Shiki himself quoted this example from Basho, which in this instance has been translated by Makoto Ueda. The wild sea extending over Sado Isle, the river of heaven. The wild sea extending over Sado Isle, the river of heaven. I don't know where that is, but it doesn't stop me transposing the image to something I do know. Perhaps in my case, I would be sitting by the local lake, 
which in German are called Sey and spelt like sea. The wind might be blowing and creating quite a stir on the lake, and the sky will be clear of everything except the moon and the stars, and in the distance I would see white snow-capped mountains over which the Milky Way extends. Now in this next stage, selective realism, we have evolved as poets and much like Shiki himself, we understand that not every real scene can be made into a poem. We become selective and start to really focus in on something within our natural environment that interests us or moves us. I think those of you with an interest in photography or art have a natural advantage with this method. You have a feel for how to look at something and frame it and an understanding of how in framing it you can bring something to life. Each of us has our own unique voice. We have our own taste, we look at things differently. Naturally, when we look at a scene, we're drawn to the beauty of it. But Shiki suggests that some of the most interesting things we could look at and talk about in our poetry are often to be found in the shade. Nothing is perfect, is it? Often there's a little crinkle or defect which makes what we're looking at beautiful, but also more interesting. Let me show you what I mean by reading you a couple of poems from Wally Swist, from his book, The Windbreak Pine, New and Uncollected Haiku, 1985 to 2015. At the river's edge, the muskrat redigging its muddy burrow. At the river's edge, the muskrat Redigging its muddy burrow. Drought summer, falling yellow leaves trickling across pools of the river. Drought summer, falling yellow leaves trickling across pools of the river. Depending on what you read, this next stage in the evolution is called imagination or subjectivity. Janine Beichmann suggests that from 1886, Shiki began to concern himself with the role of imagination and poetry, even though still averring that it must be grounded in reality. So although Shiki still believed that realism was the core technique of the haiku, he felt an experienced poet could now start using their imagination or introducing subjectivity. But how? Donald Keane, writing in The Winter Sun Shines In, speaks of subjectivity. At times, the artist will change bit by bit the placing of objects in the actual features of the landscape. Or he may even modify the actual landscape by subjectivity, bringing in things not present in the view before him. But as an experienced poet, you will be able to create authentic haiku, by which I mean you won't stray into fantasy. But therein lies a topic for another day. How do you arrive at this elevated status of advanced haiku poet? How do you gain the confidence to do this successfully? Well, Shiki recommended reading as much haiku as you can, which is important because, as Ueda says, Shiki's ideal poet is a learned person with refined artistic taste who can distinguish between the new and the stereotyped. Furthermore, he will base his poem on sachet, but will focus on some new subjects or look at an old subject in a new perspective. 
In the latter process, he may make use of his imagination and depart from Sashai, for a poet with a powerful imagination can, if he wishes, create a realistic scene without basing it on actual experience. One of the pieces of advice Shiki had for students in the last stage of their training was, you must combine realism and imagination, thereby producing great literature that is neither entirely realistic nor entirely imaginative. I'd like to give you an example from Shiki himself. At the time he wrote this, he was bedridden. He couldn't possibly see a scene like this, but probably based on scenes he's viewed in the past. Across the summer moor walks a traveller, on his back, a tengu mask. Across the summer moor walks a traveller, on his back, a tengu mask. Shiki wanted to appeal to emotions. He felt that a poem designed to appeal to the intellect would not appeal to emotions, whereas something directly observed, something which the reader feels to be truthful, would. Listening to one of my favourite podcasts this morning, I'll put a link in the show notes, I heard Con Igelson, great name that, isn't it, discussing the writing of his prose. He writes historical works. But what he said I felt made sense in the context of selective realism. He said of his stories that stories based in truth have far more power than if they were fiction. I think that reflects what Shiki was trying to achieve. In his later years, he tried very much to focus not just on direct observation of nature, but his inner truth and manifestation of his emotions and feelings, but objectively, without gimmicks or the use of over-exuberant language. He kept things simple. Let me give you an example, which was written in the year of his death. New Year's calendar, during the month of May, a day for my death. New Year's calendar, during the month of May, a day for my death. It's very simply written, it's succinct, and I defy anyone not to feel some emotion when reading it. I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I think from time to time that at some point in every year, I pass the date of my death. But I sincerely hope I'm not as close to mine as Shiki was to his at the time he wrote this. So what guidance can I give you with regard to Shiki's principles of haiku? Your haiku should be a direct observation of nature. You should focus on a small part of the landscape that you're observing, a piece to which you're connected to emotionally. Remember, you can introduce or remove elements of the landscape using your imagination. And to create an emotional connection between yourself, the scene you're exploring and your reader, only use words that are necessary. Go back and have a look at your work, cut, rearrange, or change the words. Don't overuse the adjective. And I'll stress just once more, be authentic. No writing of fantasy haiku. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you'll find that this is a technique 
you can enjoy using. I hope you enjoyed that little workshop. I have to admit, after months of hearing from other wonderful experts, I was very, very nervous doing it. It will be on YouTube, so next month, when we're writing haiku using the technique of selective realism, please go and have a look, because the conclusion of that talk will be quite important. It details very much what the editing team will be looking for in submissions. And next we have what I hope is a lovely treat for you. Kristen Lindquist is talking to us. As I said to you earlier, we're going to have a chat, get to know her a little bit. Then she'll take us on a journey round her wonderful island. And then, at the very end, give us a few tips to avoid common haiku mistakes. Let's hear what Kristen has to say. I feel like Kristen is an old friend, but we've never met. And what I do know of her, apart from her poetry, I know from her biography. So let me tell you what I do know. And perhaps today we'll find out a little bit more about her, as well as having her read to us. Kristen Lindquist is a naturalist and writer living in the USA on the coast of Maine. Her published works include books of poetry, tourists in the known world, new and selected poems, which is available through Kristen's blog, details in the show notes, and transportation. She also had, until recently, an ongoing natural history column in her local paper, The Penn Bay Pilot. Maybe you'll see her in print again after the pandemic. She's written a daily haiku blog for the past 10 years and occasionally teaches haiku workshops. She was co-winner of the Snapshot Press eChapbook Award in 2020, and her book will be out sometime this year, but as yet hasn't got a title. So Kristen will let me know when that's out and I'll make sure that I tell you all about it. And she'll be included in New Resonance 12, which is Red Moon Press's anthology for emerging writers. Also out this year. I think that's quite a big deal, but we'll come to that in a little while. <laughs> Kristen comes from a writing family. Her husband is a, would you say, a, is it a criminal or a thriller how would you describe it, Kristen? Uh, cr crime novel. And I finished one of them this morning and it was dedicated to you, Kristen. Yay! <laughs> Poacher's Son by Paul Dorian. It really is very good. But before we get to know more about Kristen, let me read you some of her work. This is from her blog in February 2021. Snow and blue sky, my feet don't touch the ground. Now, Kristen, I was intrigued by this one. I read it just after a walk that could have inspired it up in the hills around my home. Lots of blue sky and there's something about a February sky here in Switzerland that I love. And deep, deep snow. And I have my own feeling about why your feet don't touch the ground in the poem. But I wonder, can you tell me what inspired you to write that verse, if you can remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. I wrote it at work. I had gone out to check the mail. <laughs> And when I was walking back to, into the office, the sky was just so incredibly blue above the, the snowy lawn. And uh, it was just, you know, transcendent. It was like, oh, this is so beautiful. This is a moment. 
and then also was thinking about the literal aspect that when you're walking on snow, it was crusty snow, you're not actually touching the ground. You're above, literally above the ground for a while. Yeah. So it's a combination of, you know, recognizing the, the, uh, that aspect of it and the transcendent moment of just that deep blue, beautiful, beautiful sky. What we call a bluebird day. Is that, <laughs> I've no idea what they call it here, but it's, it's just maybe it's the same sort of blue that you had, but it's just so so gorgeous and deep and such a contrast to the whiteness of the snow. I just love it. Hate the snow, obviously. I don't like the snow, but I'm glad I'm glad you told us that. I pretty much had it pegged, I think. I was thinking that again, walking on crusty snow, not being able to touch the ground, and then metaphorically a bit like walking on air because of the beauty of the the whole situation you found yourself in. Exactly. And then I found another one. It was from July 2020, but apparently it's in the spring edition of the Akitsu Quarterly. So I'm not the only editor who appreciated it. <laughs> Summer heat, sitting perfectly still for a hummingbird. I've never seen a hummingbird. Obviously, don't get them over here. But what I love about this is the tension of the excitement in the way you've put it together. And when I read it to myself, not out loud, but when I'm reading it internally, I've noticed that when I get to the end of it, I've, I've stopped breathing because I'm so intent on watching the hummingbird with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's such a, a lovely, a lovely poem. Thank you very oh, much for that. Thank one. you. Now, you describe yourself as a naturalist. What does that mean to you? I guess what that means for me is I've, I, I've always considered myself uh, a lifelong student of nature. Mm -hmm. And sort of hand in hand with that. Um, I've also always just had this urge to share that with other people to, to help them be excited about nature and to want to learn the names of the other living things that are sharing this space with us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, my obviously my focus is on our community here in coastal Maine, but um, yeah, I just, uh, that's what I'm interested in. Um, that's that's what my focus is on and I like sharing that with other people and getting them interested in it and I know you have going back to the hummingbirds you have a special passion for birds haiku and birds are my two big passions in life <laughs> so mm -hmm. well I've been interested in birds since I was a kid I had a, a grandmother who was very nature oriented she and my grandfather moved to Maine from New York City area back in the early 60s, sort of back to Landers and had a, a farm on the ocean, an organic farm. This is just when organic farming was sort of becoming a thing. She always spent a lot of time with me out in the woods and, and just taught me how to use field guides and that sort of thing. So from an early age, I've been interested in birds. In the past, I guess, 25 years or so, have sort of ramped up that interest and, and just all of our vacations are birding vacations. I lead a lot of bird walks in the spring and spend a lot of time birding in the spring and fall during migration and yeah birds are my thing. <laughs> I thought I heard I heard a little bit about you on um, the Cleveland's podcast. They made a point about the birds too. So birds were with you from a very young age. What about haiku? Where did, where did that, when did that come into your life? Well, I think we all 
wrongly learn about haiku when uh, we're learning about syllables in, in grade school here. So, <laughs> so that's when we learn about, you know, five, seven, five uh, <laughs> syllables makes a haiku. So as you mentioned earlier, the, the two books that, that I've had published are, are both long form poems and free verse. And that's, I have an MFA in poetry, a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry. So I've been writing that kind of poetry seriously for uh, 30, 35 years or so. I mean, my whole high school, college, grad school beyond. And at the time that I decided to start the daily blog, I, I had a very stressful job that left me no mental energy to, to write at all. Mm -hmm. So I decided to come up with a daily creative practice to just make me do something creative. Since I didn't have a lot of time, I figured, all right, what small thing can I do? I'm like, all right, what's the smallest form of poetry? Oh, five, seven, five. I can, surely I can come up with 17 <laughs> syllables a day. So in fall 2009, I started writing a haiku a day. Well, what I thought was a haiku a day, really in retrospect, several years of those early posts are, are really just 17 syllable short poems, but, but I was getting there. And then uh, at some point in the middle there, connected, reconnected with a poet friend of mine named Peter Newton, who is the co-editor of Tiny Words and an amazing haiku poet. But I only knew him as a long poet. I don't even know how to describe long form poetry, a non-haiku poetry poet and ran into him at a writer's conference. And I said, what are you doing with your poems these days? I haven't seen any for a while. And he said, oh, I'm all about haiku now. And I piped up and said, oh, I'm doing a haiku blog. And so he very kindly and patiently and gently <laughs> introduced me to the contemporary English language haiku and what that was all about. And it was a really a revelation. Like it's not about syllables. It's about so much more. And I got just completely wrapped up in the contemporary haiku world and what what makes a haiku? I don't even remember what, what sparked this question. You were asking how I got into haiku. How you got into it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a long story, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I credit Peter Newton with that introduction to what was really going on in this sort of microcosm of contemporary haiku. And uh, he actually accepted my first haiku. He took mm -hmm. uh, one from my blog and got me started and introduced me. I attended believe it was the last haiku circle, an annual haiku gathering in Massachusetts that he helped coordinate and started to meet in person haiku poets. And, uh, and then just, then I joined a haiku group and went on from there. And it, it's really, I, I don't even write other poems anymore. It, all I'm focused on is haiku and, and haibun. I was going to ask you if you'd given up um, writing other forms of poetry, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if something comes to me, I will work on it. And, mm. and I, re I still do readings of other poetry. But yeah, my passion is, is with haiku. You said you've been writing what possibly you would not recognize as haiku now that you've got so much more experience, but you've been at it since two, 2009, you said. And yet you are now being recognized in, in New Resonance as an emerging writer. And I wondered 
because you are very experienced and when I think of you I think of an experienced poet and someone who's really good at their craft I wonder how you felt about being thought of as an emerging writer. Oh, well, thank you for thinking that, Patricia. I, I, I really do think of myself still as an emerging writer. I mean, I, I still feel like a newcomer to this world. I think it's been, you know, maybe four years or so that I've really been trying to do it right. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, just, I feel like, you know, I'm just starting to be regularly published. I don't know, maybe I, I seem sure of myself because I have that other poetry background. So writing and, and submitting and that sort of thing is sort of a natural thing for me and doing readings. But yeah, I still, I still feel like I'm, I'm new you know, still getting to know who people are and, and the traditions and, and the history and yeah. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you really. So I understand where you're coming from on that one. Now, I know you give occasionally uh, give haiku workshops and I wondered whether you could give us some idea if you, if you can think of common mistakes that beginners or people who come to your workshop make. Hmm. Uh, well, I, hopefully they don't make this mistake for long because I'm pretty upfront about it, but the 575 thing, <laughs> a lot of people bring that, you know, preconceived notion yeah. to a workshop. So I, I try to address that pretty quickly. I think the other thing that I've noticed that it's hard for people to transition into with writing haiku is if, if they've been writing other forms of poetry, it's really hard to move into haiku and not carry that impulse to be poetic with you. Yes. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. A very sort of Western poetic feel to their poetry. Mm -hmm. Maybe too many adjectives um, slipping into it. Yeah. 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 Wanting to tell just a little bit too much or mm. wanting something to be like something else. And, um, you know, just um, I do try, I try to share that understanding about you know, it's not, something isn't like something else. It is what it is in yeah. haiku with what, what you're seeing. Yeah. And then I, 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 you've talked about this before and you had Ben Ga talking about this before um, wonderfully, um, just trying to keep yourself out of the haiku, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm so bad at myself, but, but I try. It's, it's a worthy endeavor with haiku writing is trying to, to keep the ego out of it. I think there are very few occasions when we don't manage to be in the, the poem itself. What I, and you know, because I know you've submitted this this month that we're looking at, or by the time actually this conversation goes out, we will have looked at no <laughs> ego in our haiku, but it's very difficult to keep yourself totally out of it. We're always in there somewhere because we're the person observing the action, mm -hmm. the, the thing we're writing about, but it's keeping it at a that's sort of at hand's length and I was telling you I had a chat with um, Randy Brooks last night and his workshop will be going out before people listen to this and hopefully they will have seen some really excellent examples in that as well of, of, sort of no ego haiku there's some really cracking haiku in that workshop mm. but um, you've come along today to give us a little bit of a reading thank you very much uh, and what I like about it, I'm not going to say much about it, but maybe I should just say 
let's go to the reading and have a little journey around your territory with you, Christine, <laughs> if you're ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready, yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Every spring, I spend, well, I would say every spring and fall, but every spring in May, I spend time on, on a, a small island about 10 miles off the coast of Maine um, called Monhegan. And when we're out there, we joke that the next stop is Europe. And I, I go out there for the spring bird migration. Mm -hmm. And um, so for my reading today, I thought I would bring your listeners on a little tour of the island and what it's like in the spring. And I'll just preface it by saying there uh, about 50 people live on the island year round. So very small little fishing village um, in the summer. There's some inns for summer tourists and it's also an art colony. Um, Edward Hopper, Rockwell Kent, uh, Jamie Wyeth has a house there. Um, there's a little art museum. Oh, there's very little out there, but there is an art museum, which is a wonderful thing. It's, it's up at the lighthouse. Um, and most of the island has been put into conservation. Mm -hmm. it, was, um, it started being conserved back in the 1950s by Thomas Edison's son, Ted Edison. So there are a lot of hiking trails and just beautiful woods to walk through and you can walk along the shore of the whole island. So it's really just a wonderful place to explore. Island sunrise, a light already on in someone's kitchen Island sunrise, a light already on in someone's kitchen. His song amplified by morning fog, yellow warbler. His song amplified by morning fog, yellow warbler. Island farm, the irregular foghorn of goats. Island farm, the irregular foghorn of goats. Neap tide, warblers chase sand fleas along the rack line. Neap tide, warblers chase sand fleas along the rack line. Puffs of pollen a warbler's passage through the spruce. Puffs of pollen, a warbler's passage through the spruce. Spring clouds, a flock of wax wings shreds the cherry blossoms. Spring clouds, a flock of wax wings shreds the cherry blossoms. Wild strawberries, picking my way along the shore trail. Wild strawberries, picking my way along the shore trail. Gray seals in surf, the tingling skin of my selkie self. Gray seals in surf, the tingling skin of my selkie self. Shore trail, walking into the surf's roar. 
shore trail, walking into the surf's roar. Sea cliff, the best viewpoint tagged by gulls. Sea cliff, the best viewpoint tagged by gulls. Channel marker, cormorants gathering above the mackerel. Channel marker, cormorants gathering above the mackerel. Following seas, the toll of a bell buoy grows louder. Following seas, the toll of a bell buoy grows louder. Surf spray, a cabbage white flutters along the shoreline. Surf spray, a cabbage white flutters along the shoreline. The old dory planted with tulips, making dew. The old dory planted with tulips, making dew. Fish houses, the old ways marked with piled rope. Fish houses, the old ways marked with piled rope. Afternoon rain, porpoises slipping past the jetty. Afternoon rain, porpoises slipping past the jetty. Island graveyard, a view of the sea from every stone. Island graveyard, a view of the sea from every stone. Departing ferry, tossed flowers drift back to shore. Departing ferry, tossed flowers drift back to shore. Bourbon on the rocks, lit from within, island sunset. Bourbon on the rocks, lit from within, island sunset. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. <laughs> it was great. I felt like we spent the day walking around the island with you. Yeah. It was it was really beautiful. And of course, you finished with something that's special to the Poetry P journal. <laughs> because, of course, Bourbon on the rocks, lit from within, island sunset, is in the summer 2020 journal. Thank you very much for putting that, that one in. Thank and I'd, I'd also like to acknowledge the wonderful imagery in your poetry. I mean, I could have chosen any one of the, the poems, but I chose this one just to illustrate how much I, I, I love your imagery. I chose channel marker, cormorants gathering above the mackerel. I mean, you could have just told us that there were cormorants above the sea and, you know, sort of a, a mass of them. But when I read that poem, when you read it to us, I can see so much in it. It's it's such a vivid picture of the cormorants gathering with the mackerel underneath and, you know, the noise. I can hear the noise. I can see them. It's just a wonderful vision. And I think 
all of your poetry has that element of wonderful element of imagery in it that we can really feel that we're there with you and we can see it so I thank you very much for that and thank you I wondered because I know you take photographs Mm -hmm. does that help you with your poetry I I think it definitely does I mean it's it's coming from the same impulse you know Mm -hmm to observe and to record what you're observing and to share that. I mean, haiku is very much about letting in the reader and uh, which is why we can't have it too full of ego that the reader can't come in too. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's part of that impulse to be sharing a particular moment or a particular, you know, when you look at the landscape, what do you choose to photograph? It's just one tiny aspect of it. And as with haiku, you know, when you're, inspired to write a haiku you're not writing about everything in front of you you're writing about one little one little corner of the picture and and trying to do so in a way that uh, enables the reader to be there with you and and experience Mm -hmm. what you're experiencing or experiencing something of their own that honors the the moment absolutely brad bennett i believe is one of your haiku buddies yeah. Um, yeah. And he came along to talk to us about sound and musicality in, in our poetry. And there's another one that I would like to suggest, another one of your work that I'd like to suggest is a super a super example of this musicality. And actually, I've realized that you and I pronounce one of the words very differently. So I'll, I'll read it twice, once in my version and once in yours. I don't think it changes the musicality of it. Following seas, the toll of the bellboy grows louder. And you say it, following seas, the toll of a bell buoy grows louder. And it makes complete sense when you, when I see it in writing and hear, hear your version. But I've been away from England for so long now that I'm not completely convinced I've got it right in my own language. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, does, because this... I find this a lot with your poetry as well, that there is a great musicality to it. You, you seem to get sound so well. You seem to express it so well. Does that come easy? Do you even think about it or is it just natural for you? Uh-huh. Well, thank you. I think having, because I have a long background of writing other forms of poetry and poetry is very much about the music, at least the poetry that I write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it does come naturally, but workshopping one-on-one with Brad Bennett, who really focuses on euphony and sound, um, has made me more aware of how that can be used to good effect in haiku. It wasn't something I deliberately tried to do in my haiku. Sometimes it would just work out. But Brad has helped me realize that that can be uh, another strong aspect of haiku. Mm. It's it's an aspect I really enjoy. And I, I, I love reading your work for for that well you know what it's been a real treat to uh, to have you here on the podcast thank you so much and I hope well, I think we know a little bit more about you and we've certainly got to know a little bit about the the territory that you you enjoy living in through through the reading today so thank you very much for coming along and doing that and I'll be sure to know, let everyone know as long as you let me know when the chat book is out so we can all go yes, and have a good look at I that know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but if you can't wait for the chat book, please go to Kristen's blog because you'll, you're spoiled for choice. There's so much work on there that you'll be, you'll be there for ages. So I'll make sure that all that information is on the show notes. 
Kristen, thank you so much for coming along today. Oh, thank you, Patricia. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you once again, Kristen. Don't forget, check out the show notes because I'll put Kristen's blog and details of her husband's book as well as other bits and pieces on there. One last reminder that the editing team are awaiting your submissions for Kigo and that there's a great talk by Randy Brooks available in the YouTube section of the website. It inspired me and I hope it will do the same for you. Your submission deadline this month is the 20th of May. Emails only, please. I know I have one essay coming for the Summer Journal, but don't forget, if you have a burning issue you'd like to write about, or if you have a high bun, please submit them for consideration for the Summer Journal. And thank you very much for coming along and joining Kristen and myself today. Don't forget, once you've listened to us, Go and spread the word about the podcast. It's always fun to have submissions and emails from new poets. Next time, I'll be reading your selection of original poems that you were inspired to write for the topic of euphony. And of course, you can hear which poems have been nominated for the Poetry P Judge's Choice. So until then, keep writing. If there's something missing from the show notes, something extra you'd like to know about today's podcast, or you'd like some information on being a community judge, joining the editing team, submitting your highborn or essay, or you'd just like to say hello, send me an email. Ciao.